0: Welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. My name is Eric Halkron. On today's episode, we celebrate the storied career of one Julie Mack. She retires this week, so she stops by with a bit of a retrospective on what she's done during her time here at MLive. And as I said, Julie Mack is our guest today. And as always, the one and only vice president of content for MLive, the esteemed John Heiner. John, how are you? Hello, Eric. Let me take my shades off. And come back from my summer hiatus. Who doesn't love a summer hiatus, Eric? Exactly. I mean, I think most of us would love to take all of the summer as a hiatus and then get back to it in September, but we all can't do that. So, our avid behind the headlines fan base has probably noticed we've been gone for a couple of weeks, but uh, it's been a busy time of year, both personally and at work. And we just took a little break, but we're back with a really good episode today, a bittersweet episode today. Uh, it is sweet for our guest, Julie Mack, reporter Julie Mack. Hello, Julie.
1: Hello. It's
0: nice to have you with us again. Uh, our listeners will remember you from some of the shows we've had before. Um, but it's a little bitter for the, the team at M Live because this week, uh, July 8th, will be Julie Mack's last day as a reporter uh, and journalist for M Live Media Group um, as a full-timer anyways. And uh, after 30 years, going back to 1990, uh, Julie has seen a lot, and done a lot, and, and brought a lot of quality uh, and award-winning journalism to M Live and the readers of Michigan. So today, I thought it would be a really good day to have Julie Mack on, not just celebrate the career, but let's uh, have a few laughs looking back, uh, talk about your career, some of the changes that you've seen and, and weathered in journalism, because uh, you certainly worked during an interesting time.
1: I certainly did. It's certainly a much different career. I I actually started on the payroll of the Jackson Citizen Patriot in, well, as a part-timer in 1978. So, and then full-time in 81, worked for Citizen Patriot for a time, went to the um, Staten Island Advance uh, for a couple of years and worked for the Hartford Current for about five years in the eighties before I came back to Michigan.
0: Yeah. So, you know, our HR department starts the clock and turns the clock off and that sort of thing. But uh, you not only have been touching our journalism here in Michigan since, as you said, 1978, but there's a little bloodline, too, isn't there? Can you talk about the bloodlines that you you have in your family? There
1: is. Well, there's actually two. One of them is my uncle. My my first boss at the Citizen Patriot was the city editor, the Jackson Citizen Patriot, was my uncle. uh, he is married to my mother's sister, my uncle Glenn, uh, Glenn Atkin. Um,
0: I, I sat across the line. The is
1: that I am? There is a member of my family who's actually in the Journalism Hall of Fame, and that is my father, um, who was Ooh. the Jackson High School um, newspaper advisor for many years, and actually quite well known. Was, there are members of our staff that had him as a journalism teacher, um, and was actually nationally renowned. I mean, he was a he was a. In fact, he ended up in the Michigan Hall of Fame, not the Teachers Hall of Fame, but the Journalism <laughs> Hall of Fame. Tells you how influential he was in
0: scholastic journalism back in the day. Just, just curious, and I want to give a shout out to Glenn because uh, I was a colleague of Glenn's in Jackson when I, when I first went into management as a system metro editor. Uh, Glenn was one of our system metro editors too, and he, he he helped mentor me when I was a reporter. So, he'll, you know, say hello to Glenn and Joanne. But growing up in that family. You know where did you get the journal, journalism bug? Was it because you were around it or did you develop? It independently?
1: Um, you know I did I was someone who was a huge reader as a child and wanted to be a writer. and my mother was like, well, there's no money. And my mother was very practical. There was no money to be had in writing books. So um, and, I mean obviously her sister's husband was a journalist and so she steered me, you know and said, you know maybe you should think about journalism. you know, the fact that my father was a journalism teacher. And then the other thing too was, I mean, which actually Glenn and my dad had sort of a role in too, was, you know, I was definitely very much of the generation of journalists who was inspired by Watergate. And um, Glenn actually happened to be, ironically, working for the Newhouse Washington Bureau in the summer of 1972 um, when the Watergate break-in happened. And I remember him coming to my house and talking to my dad about these stories that these two reporters at the Washington Post were writing about, and saying this could bring down the Nixon administration, um, my father was very excited because he hated Nixon. Um, and you know, I was very avid. I was you know 13 at the time. I was really into Watergate, and you know, really got. And that was a big factor too. Was was that was a heady time for journalism, and was inspired me as it did a lot of people
0: yeah, I don't think anyone of our age who was in journalism would would not have been touched by the Watergate and what and how society, American society responded to that. Right. Um, you know, the contrast is the last four to six years when the press that was earnestly trying to do its job gets diminished or fake news and and there's all these other sources proliferating for information that that just evolved. But back then, Um, And it was a story that snowballed and it grew and it it changed society.
1: It did. And it was probably, you know, that was, I probably got into journalism right around sort of the golden years of journalism and that, you know, it really was sort of a, um, journalism had become a lot more professional, a lot less clubby. Um, It was becoming more diverse. It was really doing a lot of journalism. And it also, I mean, financially was sort of, you know, I got my, start at a time when newspapers did not have to worry about making money. They had sort of a monopoly on local advertising and local news. Um, and, you know, if you weren't making 30% profit every year, you were doing something wrong. I mean, it was, um, you know, it was a time when they were flush with money and did a lot. So, I mean, obviously things have changed a lot.
0: Yeah. Eric and I had a podcast. I don't know maybe four or five of them ago and we we're talking about my 40th year in the business. And, yes. and I, and I wrote a column and I said, we had a thing called the add-ons. We used to add on employees, like a good candidate we'd see, we'd say, we don't have an opening. We'll just add them on and wait till there's an opening. <laughs> it's different paradigm. They would just back up the dump truck full of cash every morning and dump it on our, our loading dock. Um, so, obviously, talk about the changes that, that we've gone through, you know, not just the business aspects for journalism, but the things that you've weathered, technology, newsroom, how reporting has changed or, or has it?
1: Well, it's, it has changed a lot. And I will say that, you know, as much as the Internet in the digital age has devastated the financial model of, of journalism, I mean, it's really improved the reporting. It's made reporting so much better, so much easier It's really made us into much better people. I mean, the old paradigm when people mourn the death of, you know, the, the phasing out of print journalism, you know, I mean, there's part of me that says like, yeah, I, I understand that. And I certainly mourn the financial thing, but on the other hand, it was yesterday's news tomorrow. I mean, people have to remember that, that, you know, it was not timely at all the way it was now. And as someone who was also an editor as well as a reporter for a long period of time, it was you had a fixed amount of space every day, and that wasn't that space wasn't fixed by how much news there was. It was fixed by the amount of ads that you sold. Right. There was what we called a news hole, um, and it was based on it. Sort of different. It differed every day, and the problem was is that there was it never really matched what the news was. There would so there would be days when you were throwing stories overboard left and right because there was too much news and not enough space. In other days you were scrambling to put in what we call filler stories because we had too much space and not enough news. It never was a good match, you know? Um, And the stories had to be um, shortened off. I mean, you know, a lot of times you were whacking stories not because um, they just read too long or there was too much information, but simply because there wasn't enough space. and even some of the um, ways in which we got our news was so much laborious. It did take more staff. I mean, if I wanted to find out, let's say, um, let's say you're writing a story about a company that's going to be coming to uh, Grand Rapids, and you're, you know, and you wanted to find out where that company was headquartered, you had to, and there was no internet you could look up. You had to call the you had to call the local library local you had to call the research the reference librarian and she would be literally going through white pages trying to figure out where this company was headquartered. Right. And how you know if you wanted to get data you would have to have someone fax you numbers and then I would be scribbling down those numbers. There wasn't a spreadsheet so I was having to do any calculations okay. by hand. Um, I mean, if you wanted to look up a past story, I couldn't just type in some keywords and find that past story. We had something called a clip librarian, where there was someone who literally was just um, uh, cutting up the newspaper every day and creating a library of past stories. Mm-hmm. The morgue you had to look them up. I mean, it was a much more laborious process.
0: To- well, I remember in the nineties. 90s- I was at the Bay City Times at the time. We had a reporter who was asked to be, well, he got access to data, right? We're going to give you data so you can do some database reporting. (laughs) He came back to the office with like a reel-to-reel tape. And I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with that, right? Um, Yeah, nowadays, uh, and that's something that Julie, for our listeners, specialize in what we call data mines, which is taking, you know, spreadsheets, vast amounts of data on, you know, population, aging, uh, uh, financial information for communities, school funding, and turning it into easy, first of all, great stories, because you can plumb data for, you know, trends and and, and, and insights. But also the tool, the, the facility we give through the internet to the reader to do sortable databases and searchable databases, it's just changed the access to information. And it's democratized it a little bit too, don't you think?
1: Oh, for sure. You know, I mean, and, you know, I mean, the fact that we can get people news, um, immediately, the fact that we can um, update stories, you know, sort of on the fly, the fact that, um, you know, and actually, if we make an error in a, I mean, we should never make errors, but they do happen sometimes. In print, there's nothing, there's nothing you, you come back the next day with the mea culpa. You know, you can fix them immediately on in a, in a right. digital thing. In terms of the democ- democratization, absolutely. I mean, we used to have letters to the editor w- in which a couple of people a day could voice their opinion on something. Now we have hundreds of people every day on Facebook being able to have a conversation about our stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or and and there's a lots of other sources of information. I mean, there are things that, you know, we think of all the things that when you and I were growing up, the, we relied on newspapers for. You had to, you needed a newspaper to find out what the weather was, what the, tech, right. what the box score was well, what the stock market did, what the, um, I mean, there are all these things now. You know, what the movie times were at the local cinema. Um, what was going to be on, on, you know, the TV listings. I mean, there were all these things that you, that, that, you know, recipes, I mean, you can go, go Google a recipe. I
0: mean, Eric, Eric, Julie will know this, but one thing, Eric, that the internet killed was when a journalist was working on a Friday or Saturday night, uh, the phone calls from the bar to settle the (laughs) fact. Right. (laughs) They'd say like I'm just
1: talking about this we were just talking about this because we were talking about the fact that we were talking about the changes over our careers and friend, do, do you know remember Pat Zarkowski? Of
0: course yeah
1: yeah so anyway, Pat and I were talking about this and yeah people from the would call you from the bar and say, all right, you know we're arguing here and they would expect you to answer their trivia question.
0: Right, right, and it wasn't like which two streets intersect in Kalamazoo, north of Kalamazoo's downtown. It was, was it, you know, Maris or or Mantle who had, you know, so many RBIs, and you get like, uh, we did have a sports almanac though. We always had. Yeah,
1: sports I mean, yeah, you'd go, you go and look if you had time here, or you go. I, I don't have time to deal with this, but they did. You because my husband said, well, what would people do when they couldn't? Because I was talking about going to the reference library, and he said, well, what did other people do? And I said, they call us. <laughs>
0: Right. We've lost that franchise, but uh, it, the Internet's kind of killed trivia, it's, you know, unless you're, you're, you're yeah. a bar a trivia game. Um, you know, Julie, you know, why don't you just you talk about the papers that you've been. In, but I think one of the places that you you were known best is the Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo Community and the reporting you did at the Kalamazoo Gazette. Um, am I wrong in that or was, no, was that's that the probably one?
1: true? I mean, that's where I spent, um, you know, yeah, when I was actually at the Hartford Kern, I was a copy editor, so I didn't do any reporting there. Um, and I'm, the, my early years of reporting are thankfully long gone. So, um, um, you know, I was able to sharpen my chops by the time I returned to Michigan. So yes, I would say I was I was a Comzoo reporter for about 25 years before I went on to the state team.
0: Yeah, and you were obviously, because you're sitting here, but you were here with us when we made the transition. And it, it really was a two-stage transition from that seven-day-a-week newspaper era. Uh, around 2009, we started to combine uh, Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids, Muskegon, started to share some things. Flint, Saginaw, Bay City started to share some things. But then the big transition was 2012 when we started MLive Media Group and we merged the papers with MLive.com, the website. Uh, what, what, do you, what Do you remember what you were thinking at that time in your career in terms of both the changes that we were had gone through, but what were you being asked to do?
1: You know, it was and I, and I, it was a tough time. As a matter of fact, so in 2000, when we were going through the transition in 2009-10, the initial one, I actually had cancer that year. I had stage three colon cancer that year. The work issues were harder than the cancer. Wow. I mean, wow. I had a life-threatening cancer and I was much more stressed out by the work situation than I was by the cancer
0: we basically were thrown onto boats and put out to sea and they said the destination is where you land (laughs) sort of like they landed on Plymouth Rock starts wherever you land start something and you know there was so much uncertainty Julie you're absolutely right that was a very it was stressful too because what we saw happening to the industry and
1: yeah and I would say you know at the time I you know was in my early I was 50 actually that year I had cancer um you know, and I, I was the main breadwinner in our family. I mean, I certainly was worried about, you know, what was going to happen to, was I going to, what was going to happen to me career-wise. But, you know, in terms of journalism, too, I mean, I think everybody who's in journalism has a sense of mission um, and, you know, was very concerned about that, too. I will say that I probably one big takeaway from that year was I felt like I had to be an old dog who learn new tricks. That was for mm-hmm. sure.
0: I, I think this has subsided a little in recent years, but that was a constant feeling for quite a while. Uh, the learning curve, it just didn't stop, you know, because um, when we started in 2012, we were really trying to conquer the internet and then social media came along and apps and, um, you know, TikTok's out there, video and audio. So, you know, and here we are on a podcast. So, um, yeah, I definitely will second that, Julie. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, an Live podcast. Our guest today is longtime M um, Live and newspaper reporter in Michigan, Julie Mack, who uh, I've been honored to work with for a long time, but sad to say, is retiring from full-time journalism this week. So uh, Julie, thank you again for being with us today. Um, I'm going to be guilty of burying the lead a little bit here because the really good stuff's coming up. And uh, I want to talk about some of the really, not just notable stories, but vital journalism that you've been a part of in your career. And I'm just gonna throw three out, but I know there's more that you can bring up. But the Flint water crisis, you played an integral role in MLive's reporting that won the public service award in Michigan for exposing what the Snyder administration knew. And uh, at at the time the whole Flint water crisis was developing and kind of swamping that city. Uh, The Larry Nassar uh, cases, women increasingly were coming out. You did some really stellar reporting around that. And just in the past year and a half, being our lead reporter on the biggest health story, public health story in America in over 100 years with COVID, has been an invaluable public service to our readers. So um, those are just, I I know that you've had a career of these kind of stories, but why don't we take them a little bit one by one? Um, I will just tell our listeners that what Julie has is a meticulous eye for detail. she has a steel trap of a mind. Um, she's a, she's a relentless reporter. Uh, she will not stop until she gets the full story, the full picture and, and gets somehow takes all these pieces and and brings great value and insight out of that, that really dogged reporting, that granular level of reporting. And I, I will never forget. We were in uh, meetings, editing the Flint water crisis stories. And, it was really complex. You're talking about arcs of communication and in, in um, of public officials who are communicating it's all these different levels. And I would say, so did so and so. How do we know so and so knew this? And you'd say, because I have, it was March fourteenth, twenty fourteen. I have the email, and I have the email. And you would pull a folder out, and you'd go right to it. It just always flabbergasted me. But it didn't just flabbergast me. I knew I slept well the night before that those stories ran because I knew it was locked down. And That's a that's a testament to the kind of journalism that you always did. So first of all, the, the Flint Waters story, t- talk a little bit about your role in that and, yeah. and how that affected you as a journalist.
1: Yeah, and f- well, well, first I want to mention something I, is that with all these stories, I will tell you that when I do a story, I Go through that story and think about if I were someone who was on the, who, who is not being painted in a good light in this story, read it through their eyes. And if they, you know what I mean? What, what might they question me on? And what would I mean? what would I say if I got that email going, what the hell? And one of, so one of my things was to make sure that every fact, you know what I mean? I didn't want anyone, did there to be any surprises on, well, I was guessing that, you know what I mean? Or I thought that. The other thing too is um, that um, I always, in other stories, made sure that if you were writing something that was negative about somebody, that they would not be surprised when that story came out. That they would know that you had told them in advance, even if you're not commenting, just so you know this is what I'm writing, this is the conclusions that I made, and if you have something different to tell me, you know speak now or forever, hold your peace. I did not want people who were negatively impacted by stories to be surprised by when they read it. I wanted them to know exactly what was in that story. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Flint water crisis, what was interesting to me is, you know, I mean, I don't think that there was some nefarious plot to screw over Flint by the Snyder Snyder administration. That said, it was very, very clear to me that first of all, Had this been a, I do think if this had been a white middle-class community, if this had been Rose Point, this would have never happened. This happened specifically because there was a city that, that that, that the state had taken over the management of Flint and it was easy for, there was really no elected official that was local that was being accountable to the people. People were going for months the city council meetings and ron Fonger people would say well why is this suddenly blowing up now ron Fonger for months before it blew up into an issue was documenting these com- complaints by people in flint about the fact that the water smelled bad and it was bad and all these people were breaking out in rashes and you know one thing after another and people were just because it was flint i think you know a poor city that had gone through a lot of struggles people were just rolling their eyes and moving on and and it was clear that there were a bunch of red flags that were coming up to the governor's office. And a lot of people there were rolling their eyes and moving on. That there mm-hmm. was, oh, well, not everybody, though. Some of his aides were like, ooh, this could really blow up on us, even in the months before it didn't blow up. Mm-hmm. That there, were, there were hints there. There were one red flag after another that just didn't um, you know, that shouldn't get checked out. And I will say that Snyder's basic defense was until the fall of 2016, I didn't realize that there was lead in the water. You know what I mean? It wasn't until, but even before that, my question for Snyder, and I never was able to get to Snyder, but I had someone else asking this question. Just even before that, the water was undrinkable. It was brown. Mm-hmm. It was causing rashes. It smelled bad. Why would you possibly think that that was acceptable for a long period of time for anybody. I mean, right. you have to know that there was lead in the water to know that there was something seriously amiss going on in Flint. And it's sort of stunning when you sit back and think about why would why was that okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just, and I do, I mean, my colleagues laugh about the sense of outrage I can work myself into, but I just, looking back on that, um, you know, that was, that really was the fault of the that was a fault of the emergency manager law, and it was the fault of a of a governor who probably had not had not benefit. This was his first job in public service. He was came from the private sector and was used to to spreadsheet analysis, cost benefit analysis, versus right. saying, "Hey, at the end of the day, people need clean, safe water." And we got to do whatever we can to get
0: to the bottom of this. Right. Well, as I said, it was very, it was a very complex story, meticulously reported. I got to witness the sourcing, attribution, fact checking, which was unrivaled in my career. Um, and it, there was no, there were no factual corrections <laughs> after that story ran. And all of the public things that Snyder had been saying in public that this was a, you know, fault of government. I mean, this was, this was. He had a, he had like four talking points. We went through and methodically rebutted them all, and I never heard those uttered in public. Uh, he said it was a failure of government at all all levels. At, all, at like. all
1: levels, and that uh, this yeah, I mean I remember that there were like four talking points that he had, and it was like well none of them were really true. You
0: know. Well, they ceased. They were never uttered in public again after the story ran. Yeah. So tell me yeah. how, uh, and I know this ended up being a very gripping story emotionally for a lot of people, but the Larry Nasser case, I, I remember sitting in Lansing Pub with you and talking, uh, Rachel Denhollander, is that her name? Uh, right. the, the, the woman who had started, to, she'd come forward and some women were starting to come forward and you were catching at the beginning of that wave, you know, and then in the, in the ensuing year, we end up with hundreds of victims and this very gripping, um, you know, victim impact statements in court and so forth. What was that story like? For you, well, both and I remember sports. that
1: too. I remember sitting in Lansing, it was right, I think it was between right after Thanksgiving. And I turned to you and said, because I was sort of pitching of we should be doing something more on this, you know, whether it's sports or whether it's us, but we should do more on this. And I said to you, I'm telling you, John, this will be Michigan State's Penn State case. Sort of like, and I'm like, no, no, no. I'm telling you, this is gonna be <laughs> this is gonna be you the Penn right. State case of Michigan State. And actually it was worse. Um, you know, there were more victims, more money. It was actually a, a much right. better situation. Um, you know, and I think the one thing that was interesting there was, and, and actually the first big story that we really did on it was people really had, the biggest element of that story was that you had women for a two-decade period coming up one by one and saying, this guy is, I'm, Complaining about Nasser doing this stuff, and one by one they were being blown off. The women were doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were saying something to an authority figure, and they were not. And that those authority figures were not responding consistently. I mean, you know, from the trainers and the Michigan State Athletic Department to um, a police, a police, someone filed a police complaint with Meridian um, Township, and that Meridian Township officer went ah. Eh. You know, what I mean, she just misunderstood what he was doing. And I also remember that um, Emily Lawler would remember that in that December, she and I had the end of the year interview with Bill Schuette and um, You know, he had what he what he wanted to talk about. And then I said, brought up the Nasser case and said, you know, it seems to me like Michigan State has some complicity there that all these women were saying something and Michigan State was blowing them off. Why aren't you going after Michigan State? He's like, Michigan State's a partner in this investigation. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, And I mean, that quotes in the story about, you know, he totally defended Michigan State. I mean, he changed his tune later on when public pressure changed. But, you know, I mean, so the issue there was not just that you had a doctor that was doing horrible, terrible things, but you also had an institution in which this was just falling through the cracks like crazy. Um, Mm. And I mean, and I sort of understand from the standpoint of, in each case, women were complaining to someone different. And so, and nobody was sort of connecting the dots together. But at the end of the day, there was a period in which he was actually under active police investigation for a year by Michigan State Police and was allowed to practice and see patients. Right. And that was, you know, and I pressed and pressed Michigan State on who made that decision? Why were you... Why would you guys, I've never heard of that. I've done lots of stories about school employees who have have been accused of sexual misconduct. And usually you take them, you don't allow those employees to have any contact with with minors or people who they might, you know, to allow Nasser to continue seeing patients while he's under police investigation. I still don't understand
0: that. What was the harder part of that for you? Was it getting information from public you know institutions and officials or was it getting the women that you talked to 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 talk and open up
1: um you know honestly i think for all of us the hardest part was actually just from an emotional the, the, so there was a a two like a two week two a week and a half long hearing in ingham county and up to that point that case we had written a lot about it but it really hadn't gained a lot of traction. And then all of a sudden you had, there were TV cameras there and the women themselves were going in front of TV cameras, telling the stories in their own words, just these gripping, heart wrenching. It was you weren't reading it in a court document. You weren't reading it even in an interview. You're seeing these women sobbing on the stand, telling their story one after another. And to, to sit through that for eight work days, it was like 155 women, I think. It was, it was wrenching. It was you know, and it was hard. I mean, I had to come in with tissues every day, and you know, yeah. I, it was just so it was it was hard to hear. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and then you're sitting in court all day and you're listening to this and then you're having to write stories after, you know, so I mean, you have these super long days because you can't write it until the court right. is, is out. Um, and but but just listening to that was really was wrenching it was it was it it gave you such insight into how um the the damage that can be done by a a sexual assault for sure
0: right well unfortunately u of m has uh an active case uh, situation with cases there with the male doctor and male athletes and that's playing out right now the you know and then this the huge story that here at the end of your career was COVID. And it's not enough just to say pandemic hits, journalists, you know, tries to make sense of it. It was so much more to have your expertise um, and your analytical mind and your, and, but you were a great marriage between the data reporting, but also I thought very pointed public health and public policy reporting, because so much of the story, Eric knows I like to talk about this, was the administration's response Um, the, you know, the the public health factor was one thing, but politics was another. And I thought you straddled that very well. So what were the challenges to you for covering uh, a pandemic where you didn't know what tomorrow was going to bring?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and, and probably, actually, this is the only time I had a story where this was pretty much all I covered for a year and a half. I mean, you know, day in and day out, I've never had a story where I, that's, Pretty much all I was doing, even the NASA stuff and the Flint water stuff, was more sporadic. Um, you know, I think um, part of the challenge was getting up to speed very quickly on um, it's, you know this very technical science stuff about you know I actually had done some stories in the past about vaccines, so I sort of knew about herd immunity and stuff like that. But you know, what, what's a coronavirus, and you know what's this? vaccine and um you know what could what's the history of 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 pandemics and how they can pan out i mean there was a lot that um there was a lot that, pe- that the people i'm interviewing don't know i mean there are it's a novel coronavirus right mm-hmm. i mean so and we don't have access to special information i mean i certainly had my stable of people who i'm calling all the time Like I had, um, you know, I mean, I'm only as good as what people are telling me. Um, Although the people, I will say that for the most part, the people who I was talking to all the time were pretty, pretty solid in what, in what they were saying. I think the hardest part of it was your, and I still get them. I got them this weekend. I got them today of emails from people going, um, you're not telling, you know, it's sort of the fake news thing that, you know, the idea that, um, you know, you why aren't you writing about why uh, hydroxychloroquine is, is a great thing? Why are you keeping that from people? You know, <laughs> you, um, you you know, why aren't you writing about how the hospitals are faking the death numbers? Why aren't you writing about, um, you know, all this money that hospitals are making from hospitalizing coronavirus patients. Um, and I, I mean, people had, you know, the mask thing. Um, you know, I think that there was a lot of politics, a lot of people, um, you know, question. As a matter of fact, I think I copied you on an email over the weekend, Someone wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I gave me, me a long thing of it. why aren't you why aren't you reporting on this why aren't you reporting on that and I went through and one by one said, you know, here's here's the deal here's the deal and she didn't respond. And, Did you notice? Um,
0: yes, I I noticed the conspicuous lack of response. Your you know, facts.
1: So um so I think that um but you know on one hand though those emails were useful in that you know you can I. When people had when an issue would come up, I could ask doctors about it and say, "You know, emails saying X. What do you say to that?" Um, And make sure that's a really
0: good point that I'm going to jump in and just tell our listeners: we don't just you know send emails to the circular file. Uh, It's story tips, uh, questions that are are based in um, a gap in a story or logic. We will chase we'll chase down answers for them. We don't always write stories about it, but we do, and this is what journalists do. We're, take, we're taking... Right, and there's,
1: there have been many, many coronavirus stories that I've written that were inspired by an email, you know what I mean, where I would research the answer for the emailer, but then I go, okay, well, I might as well write a story about it now that I have um, now mm. that I've nailed down these numbers, you know, and I think that, um, and it was interesting both the, I mean, because you had, you know, you had the Issue of Trump's response and Biden's response, and then Whitmer's response, and Republicans. I mean, they were all different responses, right? You know what I mean? And um, so I think sorting, sorting through some of that stuff was um, was interesting, you know, and um, and the different state, you know, what different states were doing, it. because Michigan did handle it differently than a lot of states. Yeah, right. question of. Um,
0: was that was that appropriate or not yeah you know at your retirement party we can talk about the retirements of dr gordon and what you think (laughs) right right. so
1: yeah
0: i will say this eric i mentioned sitting next to julie in the hub and, and just talking stories that i will miss that so very much julie is got a very active, engaged mind. She's a very smart person and she has got passion for even you can hear it in the podcast that she says passion for journalism. And we gonna miss that very much. So I want to wrap up by putting you on the spot, Julie, 50 years that you've identified as a journalist. What to you is the most compelling story or one that stands out to you? Um, uh, you know, some of the work, to me, you've done on mental health, writing about your family's issues with cancer, things like that were co- very compelling. But for you, what, when you look back, what's one that stands out?
1: I mean, in terms of, you know, some of that NASA stuff, I think in terms of compelling was pretty compelling. I mean, I do think the, you know, the COVID, I would say the COVID stuff in the, um, in, in the, the stuff simply because it was so, they were both so, I mean, because they're not just big policy stories, they're stories that hit individuals so intensely, right? Um, and um, and I would also say the other big story that we haven't mentioned that I did when I was in Jackson Paper, that was a pretty positive story and that was the Columbus and Promise. So I was the main reporter oh. on that for a
0: while. Right. So, and yes, I should note that julie is an expert in, in public education especially charter schools probably nobody who's working in journalism in michigan is as versed in in, in um, the whole history and performance and debate and politics around charter schools so we will miss that expertise julie i hope that we will see your name in print from time to time um, as as a uh, guest writer for us uh, we'll continue to talk about that but congratulations so much on your marvelous career, not just the great work you did, but the impact that it had on, on people, readers, and, and making our state a better place.
1: Well, I will certainly miss um, the people at like That is for sure. I mean, not miss all the all the work. But <laughs> 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 the daily grind for the people I miss for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you again. And uh, good luck in retirement. Okay. And there she goes. A big thanks to Julie Mack. And uh, thank you for the work that you have done over your absolutely brilliant career. As always, if you like what John and I are doing, you can like, review, and share wherever you get your podcasts. And until next week, he is John Heiner. I am Eric Hulkerin. And this is Behind the Headlines.